On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the vote last week to allow the House of Commons to continue to function virtually. Is this a good idea or should the MPs be back in the House doing their work? We'll talk about that. And Don Robertson joins us. We're going to talk about firing general managers and biting people in hockey and money in baseball and when is enough enough and all kinds of other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Late last week, uh, Parliament voted to allow MPs to virtually attend the House of Commons if they wish to, uh, still virtually attend. Of course, we know that during COVID, this has been a thing. There have been very few parliamentarians most of the time in the House of Commons, but it was coming back and then all of a sudden they decided that this was now where we're going to go, that... um, you can come or you can not come. You can tune in by your computer or you can be there in person. Now, some are saying this is really good because it keeps our MPs safe from COVID or from variants. Uh, one MP, at least one MP, argued that this was a really good thing because it allowed female MPs who are also mothers of young children to look after their kids from home while still working. Others have said, no, come on, this is ludicrous because most other parts of society have been able to gather safely now. Uh, everyone's vaccinated. Why should our politicians not be able to do the same and carry out the steps of democracy in a public fashion? Duff Conacher is co-founder of Democracy Watch. He joins us now. Duff, thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate this. My pleasure. Uh, I'll be I'll be up front. I thought that Parliament should have been the first place to reopen once vaccination started because the uh, democracy and the appearance of our democracy are, in my mind, that important that the MPs should be front and center showing A, that vaccines are working and B, that democracy matters. Am I being too hard on them? There really was, uh, after just a month in uh, with COVID, in other words, in uh, late April 2020, there really was no reason for Parliament to be closed after that. Uh, A representative sample of uh, MPs proportional to the numbers that each party has of MPs in the House could have been in the House from then on without any problem. And uh, the Liberals wanted to avoid the accountability. And so instead, we saw Trudeau holding news conferences, choosing who would ask questions, controlling the news conference, ending it whenever he wanted, whenever a tough question came for the rest of the time period, instead of being in the House and being held accountable by uh, opposition parties and uh, and also having to uh, meet with the media where the media would be running the news conference and controlling who asked questions. So that accountability should have been there from late April, late April 2020 on, and we still don't have it as a result of, uh, unfortunately, the NDP supporting the Liberals. Well, and yeah, and to be fair, it's not just the Liberals that voted for this to keep the virtual House of Commons in play. There are other parties that voted for this as well. Um, all right, so let, let's 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 look at the other side. My opinions, notwithstanding, if they are if the MPs are logged on to their computers and can listen to the debate and participate in the debate and take part in the vote, does it matter that they're not there in person? No, that part of it is fine. What? the people who need to be there are the ones who represent the government because the purpose of parliament, although it's confused in Canada a lot is the purpose of parliament, including MPs from the ruling party are to hold the government, meaning the cabinet ministers and the prime minister to account. 
And so the prime minister and cabinet minister should be required to be there. Uh, if there's going to be a question to them or a debate or they're introducing a bill or there's a debate on a bill that they're uh, associated with, unless they're traveling on government business, which obviously the prime minister goes to international conferences, so does the foreign affairs minister and some of the other ministers at various times, trade minister and things like that. But otherwise, they should be required to be in the House and the opposition party leaders and representatives uh, are there to question them. And it can be all done again on a proportional basis, um, negotiated on a weekly basis, uh, so that the right proportions are there. Um, right now, the opposition parties in total have a majority of MPs, and so they should always have a majority in the House, so that the uh, Liberals can't pass through something that uh, they shouldn't be allowed or wouldn't be able to, given it's a minority government. Uh, but otherwise, you can have flexibility with, with others, people who aren't on any committees or People who have family demands, travel demands, uh, all sympathies to those MPs who have to travel to Newfoundland and Labrador and BC and the Yukon and and Nunavut and Northwest Territories every week. Uh, that's a lot of travel. Uh, it's very long trips. They can get stuck in on on places. And people who have family demands, that flexibility should be there because that will open up uh, the possibility of becoming an MP to more people. Okay. And, and good point. Good point on that one. But look, if, if you just talked about travel a couple times, if, if it's safe enough for MPs and cabinet ministers to get on planes in an enclosed space and go to conferences that are in enclosed spaces and sit with people in enclosed spaces, how is it any different than sitting in the house of commons when we're talking about COVID safety? How's it any different? Uh, it's not. But a lot, of, a lot of workplaces are allowing that flexibility now, realizing that not everybody has to be in the office every day. And, and that is a, allowing some people to apply for jobs that they wouldn't have applied to before because of the travel demands or either commuting every day or, or uh, travel demands of the job. And uh, that's great because that opens up those positions to those who have family demands that uh, make it impossible for them to travel that much. And uh, that flexibility, I think, is fine to offer. It's a good thing to offer because we're going to end up with a more uh, diverse set of people running for parliament and, and a more representative group of people run, running for parliament. Um, and that's, that's a good thing as well. That, that's part of the flexibility and the rules that have been brought in in the last five or six years. And, and those changes, I think, are a good thing. Uh, MPs should be working just because the House is not sitting so much on Fridays now and sometimes not Monday mornings to make things a bit more flexible doesn't mean that MPs should not be working. I think there should be a job description for MPs and they should be disclosing what they're doing each week publicly so that their uh, voters in their ridings can see what they're doing and, and see what they're not doing and see yep. how many breaks they're taking uh, from the job. That kind of accountability should be there. But the flexibility should be there as well, because that will open up the job to more people. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's a very valid point, but I go back to your earlier point. If if we have a whole bunch of MPs who are backbenchers who are not going to be in the House of Commons because they can work from home, that means there's an awful lot of empty seats. So cabinet ministers could spread out and be more than six feet apart. And there's no reason why cabinet ministers could not be there in person, at the okay. very least. No, cabinet ministers should be required to be there. Um not all of them every day, uh, but, you know, questions are lined up in advance for cabinet ministers. 
And uh, if there's a question on their portfolio, they should be required to be there unless, again, they're traveling on government business. Um, sometimes opposition parties ask questions of whatever minister stands up to answer it, even if it's not the minister who's responsible for the portfolio. But usually they save questions to put the minister's feet to the fire on uh, when they're in the House. And they should be required to be there. That's what Parliament's there for, to hold the government to account. The ministers represent the government. And it also makes it a lot easier for the media to ask them questions because they have to leave the house. And then the media can uh, ask them questions. When when they're away and on online, the media don't get that opportunity to ask them questions. And thankfully, the Parliamentary Press Gallery has uh, started again running the news conferences or mm. uh, when the, the government is uh, giving a news conference or an opposition member so that the media runs the news conference and decides who asks the questions as opposed to the politician being able mm-hmm. to choose reporters that they know are friendly to their party. And so we, all these things are very important for accountability, and we have missed that accountability and unfortunately are still missing it because ministers and that's really have to show up. And Duff, we only have 30 seconds, but that really, to me, is the big issue here. Is it is. I, we, we, we've, we've missed it, but I worry that we're going to start getting used to this if we haven't already. And that's a real problem if all of a sudden this becomes the norm and people go, well, this is just fine. Why do we ever have to go back? I, I think that's a huge problem if this becomes habitual. Very much so. Question period is something that is watched by a lot of people. The news uh, media can take clips from it very easily. It's a very key part of government accountability, and it has to happen in person. That is Duff Conacher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch. We always appreciate your time, Duff. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest, and take care and stay safe. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty. Um, many, many other things, not yet owner of a Tim Hortons franchise that I know of, but who knows after today, maybe that's an investment. We, we will see, sir. How are you tonight? Good, Scott. How are you? I am well. Would you run to the store to try a Tim Bieber or Jeff, Justin Bieber inspired in, oh boy, let me start again. Would you run to the store to try a Justin Bieber inspired Tim Hortons donut? No, but I think it's great marketing ploy. Pretty popular with the kids, pretty Canadiana, you know, good combination, but I'm not um, not uh, strolling down to the store, although I I, uh, I do like Aaron Birch's store and Joe Pekarik's stores, so if I go, I'm going there. You don't have all of Justin Bieber's albums in your collection, is what you're saying? I have a total, how many do you have? Some. Uh-huh. He, he has a number of albums. <laughs> so, so, so apparently you don't have them all either, and I have none. Now, I do have, I do have a lot of Burton Cummings around and uh, some Willie Nelson, but no Justin Bieber in the uh, Rolodex yet. See, now why wouldn't they have gotten Burton Cummings to do a Tim Bits flavor? Or Max Webster, Kim Mitchell, or Brian Adams? You know, they could have done a variety of them with different era musicians. Maybe they still will. You know, hit the different age groups. They may not be done yet. That's right. That's right. You know, like um, Stomp and Tom and, you know, there's a lot of things they could do. But I, I I do think, quite frankly, there are a lot of media outlets, including you and Ben chatting about it earlier, 
that are talking about Justin Bieber Timbits. So I think they hit the home run. You know, they kind of nailed uh, the hockey guys with McKinnon and Crosby, although Crosby's a bit of a slam dunk. A buddy of mine, Robbie Forbes, who uh, we beat in the Allen Cup in 87 in Brantford, uh, is uh, is uh, Sidney Crosby's uncle and the former vice president of marketing of Horton. So there's a bit of, bit of a marriage there, but I don't think uh, Forbes had much to do with Justin Bieber, but I think they got to figure it out. I mean, I think they're on the right track. They're, um, they're, hey, they're getting people talking. Whether they like the donuts or not doesn't really matter, I don't think. Um, in fact, See, by I'm, having I'm, them... I'm... Go ahead. No, but I was going to say by having, even if they were atrocious, that can be a marketing ploy too. <clears throat> it doesn't sound like Ben liked this one, so it's all good. But, you know, as long as people are talking and they're talking passionately one way or another, that's that's good marketing, I guess. I'm more interested in what he got paid. I would bet a million bucks. Oh, I think it might be more than that. I don't think Justin Bieber gets out of bed for a million bucks these days, but, um, you know, who knows? Who knows? Hey, uh, speaking of a million bucks, Don, it's a great segue. Thank you for doing that one. Um, Speaking of a million bucks, and it's way more than a million bucks, we have seen in the last number of days, and I'm sort of stunned by this, here are some of the signings that we've seen in Major League Baseball, the free agent season. Corey Seager signed for $325 million, 10 years. Marcus Simeon, former Jay, seven years, $175 million. Max Scherzer signed today with the Mets, three years, $130 million. Robbie Ray signed today, former Blue Jays, Seattle, five years, $115 million. Kevin Gosman yesterday for the signing with the Jays, five years, $110 million. And it goes on and on and on. There are many, many, many more who have signed in the last week or two for millions of dollars. And yet, Don, on December the 1st, it appears baseball is going to have a lockout because owners and players cannot agree and players seem upset that they are being squeezed out of money that is due to be theirs. Look, I I, I understand that, you know, the pie is big. I just don't know how, if you're a player, even if you're not getting the full percentage that maybe you think your players deserve, I don't know how you think you can possibly win the public relations battle when a guy today signed for $325 million and you're arguing you're being shortchanged. Well, I get obviously the numbers are obscene, right? I mean, that's more than you make. But the numbers are absolutely obscene. But you have here's how I look at stuff like that is the owners are rich because they've either inherited the money for the most part, they've made it. And it's always generally assumed that people that are very successful want to buy sports franchises and then lose their mind because they spend too much money. But remember that most of these guys have built wealth through good decisions. So I think that they're very being very clever by offering out all this cash and it's going to get into a PR war once the collective, you know, once they get their squabble going. And can't the owner sit back and say, how much money do you guys want to make? We just handed out in four contracts, almost a billion dollars or six contracts. Yeah, well, Texas, the Texas Rangers this week have spent half a billion dollars on two players. Okay, so doesn't that put the, from a, 
from a public relations standpoint, doesn't that put the owners in a pretty good position to say, really, you're not getting enough, you want more? I mean, the owners aren't stupid. They're good businessmen. And they've determined that this is probably good business. Let's throw all this dough out the door and then let the players say, you know, you're not giving us enough. I think it's brilliant on the owner's part. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I, you know, I'm not arguing that the players percentage that they are, I'm not arguing the players technically are wrong in their position. What I'm arguing is I, we don't see how much the owners make. It's public what the players make. And I just don't know how you win this case in a PR war. I don't know how you possibly, when the average salary is now in the four and a half, five million dollar range. I just don't know how you win this one. Well, I, I, I don't think they do, which is why I think this makes the owners look brilliant. And, and I don't, you know what, I, it never bothers me. I mean, I, I don't care if MLSE, our local ownership group that owns everything with the Blue Jays and Rogers own them, I don't care if they make a billion dollars a year. I really don't care. And I also don't care if Mitch Marner makes $100 million a year. I just want to watch the games, and I want to watch my team be successful. If the Blue Jays have to blow a billion dollars a year on salary, I'm not going to judge the guy that's making, you know, $13 million a year and playing 25 games. I don't care. I just want to win. And I don't know why people get so fixed on – this guy's making too much money. Look at uh, Wee Willie. For years, two or three years, he's making too much. He's making too much. Who cares? Pay him whatever he wants. MLS year making whatever they make. Let him do it. Uh, two things on what you just said. The first one about the owners. Uh, I, I don't, you know, as long as the players are being paid, you know, and, and clearly they're being paid here, uh, to me, it's always the business owner that run the risk here. The players, that that contract, that $325 million contract is a guaranteed contract. If he blows out his knee in game one of next season, he still gets paid $325 million. So, you know, if the teams start losing money or whatever, um, it's that's the, the owners assume that risk. It's the same with any business. And so I, I'm, I'm willing to, even though they're making obscene amounts of money, I'm willing to say, you know, if you're, if you're the one who's assuming the risk, um, uh, you know, and you get a slight bit more of the pie than someone else, I, I can have that discussion. But the other part, Don, is this, I, I disagree with you on the pay them whatever. And here's why, because as the owners have to make their money that they want and the players want to make whatever huge money they want, it goes up and up and up. Prices of tickets have to go up to cover that. Prices of beer at the games or merchandise or whatever else have to go up. And and then the TV revenues have to go up. And who pays for the TV revenues? Well, advertisers. And how do we pay for the advertisers? Well, that means all the products that they sell have to go up in price. So even if you don't follow a team, if you drink pop and they advertise, that's going to go up. If you drink beer, if you drive a car, if you wear the clothes... Every single person is ultimately down the pipe going to be affected by the fact that these salaries are continuing to go through the roof. So, you know, I, I, I don't agree to pay them whatever. I, I think it would be a wonderful thing if we could somehow do a reset and make it so that 
my kids and your kids and everyone's kids and grandkids could actually maybe afford to go to a game once in their life. And that maybe some of the things around the rest of society that we pay a fortune for wouldn't have to be quite so much because we wouldn't have to be paying so much for it. But that's just my, you know. Uh, so, so, and I understand that. Um, you know, that's, that's your position. Yep. My thought process would be is that if you're buying a Coke, for example, you said pop, but if you're, if you're going to buy Coke and Coke are paying that much to advertise on for the MLSE and they didn't, do you think they'd charge less? Because I go to uh, a lot of grocery stores, as do you, and I see self-checkouts. I don't see my grocery bill going down because they're not paying cashiers. So what I'm saying to you is that if they don't spend the money advertising there, they'll spend it somewhere else because they think there's good value in it. So you can, You're right. you can relate it the way you can relate it the way you did. I would re- relate it more directly to ticket prices. And, um, I, I have, I don't know if I said this last week, Susan, and I went to a game two weeks ago, bought tickets off my guy's got season tickets. They had Scotiabank club privileges, which I don't know what that was. So, Almost the game was over. I paid I paid him five hundred and fifty bucks for two tickets. I can sell you six season tickets for the real McCoys for the same amount of money. It was crazy. Like that's nuts. But you know what? The place was full. Like I haven't bought a ticket to go to a relief game in I guess I don't think I ever have. I've always been a guest in a box or something else. But it's nuts. So the ticket prices would be affected. And I understand what you're saying, but the advertising people would spend that money somewhere else. And I don't think it would affect the price. And I, I agree with trying, your... They're trying to sell a product. No, I agree with you that it would have gone up, that it would go up. I just think that it would have gone up a whole lot slower because there's a lot... They, they would have eventually... Things always rise in price. They do. It's 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 gone on since way before sports ever started selling tickets, for sure. But I, I, I think we've seen, and, and it's not going back. I mean, look, I, I, you know, my idea that we roll back to a reset, I, that's wishful thinking. That's never happening. I grant you that's no. not happening. But it may have gone up a whole lot slower, and we may not be in the place we are right now with the price of some things. And as you say, tickets, and you know, you want to buy a Maple Leaf sweater right now, like go to, go to a, a, buy an official Maple Leaf sweater. It's probably 250, 300 bucks. You want to buy a, a hat for any team, a, a whatever. Everything is wildly expensive now. It's like Disney World. It's just everything because, you know, prices for this and that have gone up. And so we're going to pass it on to the consumer. And but so, here, but here's, here's the great part, not to get political, but it's like getting vaccinated. It's a choice. You can make a good one or a bad one. I am not paying 250 bucks for a Maple Leaf um, jersey with anybody's name on the back of it. I'm not going to do it. I, I make that choice. So it's all choice-driven, right? You don't have to have them. If you want to pay too much for something, pay too much. I think except, we pay too much for our cars. Yes, except but, but, that, but Don, that's my point. Some of the stuff, Some of the stuff is directly a choice. You're right. But some of the stuff... When you follow the money through the TV ratings, through the advertisers passed on, even if you're not wanting to watch the sports, the sports is having an impact on what you're paying for stuff. It just is. Um, you probably saw this on the weekend. 
Brendan Lemieux, who plays for Los Angeles Kings, apparently, it seems anyway, apparently got into a scrap. He definitely got into a scrap with Brady Kachuk, the captain of the Ottawa Senators, but apparently may have chomped down on the Senators captain's hand with his teeth and bit him not once, but twice. If in fact he really did bite him and it appears that he did, although the video, the, the, the result seems to show that he did. The video is a little unclear, but if he bit him, what's the proper penalty for that in hockey? Um, in the old days, you would have cross-checked him in the face and knocked a bunch of teeth out. <laughs> so he can't um, bite anymore. <laughs> yeah, that'll fix that problem. Uh, it's, I don't know, the world's changed, right? I mean, obviously you can't, but then you get into the argument, and this will be Lemieux's argument, because when, I don't know how many hockey fights you've been in, and I've never been in one I've won, so I quit doing it. But I did a lot. Until I realized I couldn't win. But when you get in a scrap and all of a sudden somebody jams their fingers in your mouth because you think they're going to rip the, your mouth open wider and, you know, they're, they're, being in a hockey fight is not a lot of fun. And if somebody sticks their hand in your mouth, you're probably going to bite your fingers because it's going to make them quit trying to rip the side of your cheek open. So you have to know the whole story. But if you assume that that didn't happen, and the guy was just being an idiot and bit him a couple times, then you suspend him. But is the suspension a whole lot different than clonking a guy in the top of the head with your hockey stick? I, You know, you have to take a look at it. He didn't take his finger off. Mike Tyson bit uh, part of that guy's ear off. Holyfield. Uh, Holyfield, wasn't it? Yep. Part of his ear off. And then, and then Tyson got rich because he did it. It's The world's crazy. But if he... If he just chomped down on him, then there'll be an appropriate suspension. You don't kick him out for life because sillier things have happened in the game. And if you're going to play in a sport where you permit fighting and grappling, these things are going to happen, and you can't really get rid of a guy forever when you actually permit the uh, uh, partaking of fisticuffs, I don't think. See, part of the interesting thing for me on this one is the, where is the line? And certainly biting would seem to me to be well over the line. But then in the Ticat game, I think it was the Ticat game yesterday I was watching. I think it was the Ticats. Um, near the end of the game, a Ticat player is running around in the back of the end zone to waste time. And an Alouette player grabbed his hair and yanked him to the ground and pulled him and tackled him by the hair. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem a whole lot less egregious than biting someone. A little bit, but, and yet no one even hardly mentioned it and seemed to have much of a problem. It's just, okay, you pulled his hair and tackled him. And, and I know that, I know people are going to say the difference is that if your hair sticks out from under your helmet by football rules, you're permitted to tackle people by the hair, but I still don't know that it Don falls into the good behavior or acceptable among the fraternity of football players kind of rule. It seems like it's another sort of cheesy way or dirty way of tackling well, someone. I, the the, uh, the hair from under the helmet to pull a football player down and that's not um, egregious or inappropriate. It's, it's just blatantly stupid. That's like saying that Kachuk wouldn't have got his fingers bit if he'd left his gloves on. I mean, 
if you're doing something silly, you're doing something silly. If a guy's got long hair and you grab him by the hair in the hockey helmet and pull him down, like that, the argument about the football, I mean, that's just obscene as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, you have to look at the whole picture. And, you know, like, like I said, if Kachuk doesn't take his gloves off, his fingers don't get bit. Well, you know what? They permit fighting in hockey. So your gloves are going to come off. You can't justify any of it. They're both wrong. So deal with it. And if people do something silly every once in a while, then you deal with it and suspend them appropriately. That's what I would do. All right. Now, let me ask you this. You, you run the Dundas Real McCoys. Let us say one of your players bit another player. What would you say to your player who did that? I tell him he was an idiot. <laughs> okay. I had that in 1987. It was a scrap between Tim Cranston, one of the best senior players ever to come out of the East Coast. Him and Rocky Saginaw got in a scrap, and Rocky Saginaw allegedly bit his finger. I only know it's allegedly because the referee didn't see it. Rocky bit his finger. He got a one-game suspension in a national championship. And I said to Rocky, I said, what is wrong with you? Like, were you crazy? And, like, that's how you deal with it. I mean, why would you do it? But if you do it, you have to suffer the consequences. We won the Allen Cup that year. But it was nuts. He got a one-game suspension. Yeah, uh, I, I don't of, know. That was a it lot is... of behind-the-scenes negotiating with the referee in Hockey Canada. Probably should have been three games, but it turned out being one. Good for us. It, it seems like there are certain things in the sport that just cross the line. And I would, uh, I, I can't imagine a sport in which biting is not above like here. Here's the biggest, pro- you know, the NHL, uh, I, I have, I often have problems with the NHL's discipline system because I find it wildly inconsistent. It just, it seems so yeah. often that they're making it up on the fly, but you know, the one way that you could really penalize this guy is, don't penalize him at all. Put him back in because he his reputation around the league now is done. And of course, he's the son of Claude Lemieux, who already was you know a guy so, who was so was his so was his dad. Yeah, yeah. You, you, he's going to have a tough go of it now, just being out on the ice now that he's known as the biter. And um, you know it's it's going to be tough for him. He's going to get a penalty for sure. He's going to get a suspension for sure. But he when he gets back on the ice, it's not going to be easy for him. You've, he's made his bed, and he's now going to have to deal with that because other players are going to be unhappy with his behavior. And you know I don't know that any suspension he gets is going to be as difficult as what he has to deal with on the ice. Anyway. Before social media, before social media, hockey was far more cruel. Now there's mics everywhere, so there won't be quite as much yapping. But I'm telling you, 15 years ago, the abuse he would have taken would have been a lot of fun to listen to. But you're <laughs> right. He'll, he'll, get, he'll get his comeuppance. And everybody in any game will be taunting him by holding up their fingers or doing whatever. Like he's going to live with this now for a long time. This is going to be part of his legacy, oh. whether he wants to or not. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mark Bergevin uh, out after a long stint as general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. And Don, 
the Canadians are having the worst start in their history, which is a long history and a historic history and a history with a lot of pride and all those kind of things. And I don't, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a big booster of Mark Bergevin. I think Mark Bergevin screwed over the Hamilton Bulldogs in the AHL when they were here in the farm team of the Canadians. I think he did very little to support this city or this team. That wasn't his first priority, but it was a part of his job. And I think he didn't do it. And I think that last year's run to the Stanley Cup finals was more a fluke than anything else because his goalie got insanely hot at the right time. But is Mark Bergevin the really the guy, the fall guy, or should he be? It's the case with any team, really. Or have his players so underperformed that you can't? The old cliche: you can't fire all the players. But is this on him, or is this on players who have really stunk <clears throat> this year? All right. Well, I have disliked the Montreal Canadiens my entire life. And the only thing I like about the Montreal Canadiens is Michael Andelar. Um, and I would agree that they overachieved. Um, I think he wore his success, which was mostly a fluke, as you said, on his sleeve. You're talking now about Bergevin, right? You're, you're back to talking about Bergevin, not Andelar. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, I just like yeah. Andelar. I just... Okay. A lot of respect for Michael Andelar and what he does. They, he's the best thing that ever happened to Montreal. The only thing I like about the Montreal Canadiens is uh, is uh, is Michael. But Bergeron, you know what? Yeah, you want to play the part, then play the part. The only thing I will say, and I'm not going to defend him, is I have two words: Carey Price. When you go from the Stanley Cup Finals and having the best goaler on the planet to starting the next year with expectations high and him not being able to participate, it's, that's a, that's a no win situation. My finding to get fired. Of course I am. But in fairness, when, when you have, when you lose carry price, boy, fix that. So is that, it, it, was it unfair then? And again, le- leaving aside your dislike for the Canadians, is it unfair to lay the blame on this guy when the one piece of the puzzle that he helped to sign long-term that is supposed to be there isn't there and then the team wilter, wilts as a result? Is it unfair to fire him until Carey Price comes back and you see what his team could be? Um, I don't think so because I think they looked at his whole body of work. I mean, you know, the, what happened with Carolina, there's been an awful lot of missteps along the way. I don't think it's all laying at the feet of, um, Carey Price or Bergeron because of Carey Price. I think it's a collective thing. I mean, he's, 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 um, pardon me, was in the last year of his contract went to the Stanley Cup Finals, and he didn't get a contract extension this summer. That's not exactly much of a ringing endorsement from ownership. So he was on thin ice, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you're, you would think that would be the the moment when they would say, hey, let's let's sign you long-term. You're right. Not getting that was interesting. Let's put it that way. It, was, it said something. L- let me put it this way. If Kyle Dubas went to the Stanley Cup Finals 
last year with the Toronto Maple Leafs. They just signed him to a 300-year contract. <laughs> yeah, well, the Montreal Canadiens didn't even re-up Bergeron. Like, yeah, you know what? I mean, look, I, I'm I'm of the opinion again. I'm not I'm not mourning his going because I I think for you know I'm looking at it locally and you know back in the day when the it was the AHL team here I I talked to Mark Bergevin at times about the Bulldogs and it was always my opinion that you know other general managers had really taken care of the franchise. You've got the big club, you've got the lower club. You try to win down here to build a winning tradition and to teach the guys how to win, and it matters. And I thought that he didn't do that at all. I thought he didn't care about Hamilton whatsoever. And his priority, I know, was Montreal, but it's still part of your job. So I, I was not a big fan. But at the same time, I do think that it's, you know, if you take away any coach or general manager's best piece, boy, it's um, it, it's a tough one to say we're going to hold you accountable for the way this team is playing when your very best piece and the piece that really has been the key to all your success is not there. That, that is tough. But as I may mention, ownership by not offering him an extension spoke volumes. It did. Like ownership are saying, you know what? You can stay, but you let's see what you can do this year. And they didn't. What was the name of the uh, general manager of the Habs before Bergeron? I can't remember. I think was Bob Gainey? Was Bob Gainey before him? No, it was two thousand and three when when I was involved in putting that bulldog deal together to keep him here with the Oilers, and uh, that guy was outstanding, and he cared how successful his franchise with. Uh, I I don't uh, disagree with your thoughts on what Bergeron thought of the ha- or the Habs farm team, but. Everybody knows that your success, really, really your success in the National Hockey League now comes from the farm. And the Leafs have done it a little bit because you need those inexpensive guys to be, you know, your second and third line guys without paying them an exorbitant amount of money. And if you don't care about the American League farm team, you're never going to have long-term success in the NHL. So that's probably coming back to bite him, his attitude and what you say his position was with the uh, AHL Bulldogs, that wouldn't have changed with the Laval Rockets. But, you know, it just kind of, kind, of, kind of says what you think of your AHL team. And if that doesn't uh, bode well for you, the Habs back uh, when they had the team in Sherbrooke and everything else, Rick Natras played there. I mean, uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, everybody said the Habs AHL farm team could have played in the NHL. They may have been uh, as good as some of the expansion teams. So if you don't do that, and he, uh, you know, and I don't, I concur with what you say, kind of ignored the AHL team. It speaks to what you, how you run an NHL team. So he didn't get an opportunity to get extended. That laid the groundwork for what happened yesterday. He, this is amazing. We got to go, but this is this is amazing. I just looked up as you were talking the list of Montreal Canadiens general managers. This is how relatively stable this franchise has been, which is quite amazing. So Mark Bergevin is now out. Before him, for a brief time, was Pierre Gauthier. Before him, for a long time, about eight years, was Bob Gainey. Before them, and what you're talking about at the time that the deal you wrapped, Andre Savard was the general manager then. 
Rajon Ool was before him. Serge Savard before him. Irving Grunman. And then you got Sam Pollock and Frank Selke. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine general managers ago, you had Frank Selke, who they've got trophies, a trophy named after. I mean, that's how long ago that is. I, mean, I don't even know how many general managers the Leafs have had in that period of time, probably about 72. But it's, um, you know, it says something about the Canadians franchise, like them or not, that they have had pretty remarkable stability over the years that, um, you know, well, mostly because they've usually been really good, so they don't have to fire anybody. Well, here's what I take from that. What do you have to do to get fired from that job? Not job. win. Not win. Because all yeah. the other guys won. Yeah. Um, and, and they, and that's, that's post 67 expansion too, right? Salky and, and, uh, and Sam Pollock, uh, Sam Pollock, those guys were pre expansion. They've still maintained a high level. So what do you have to do to get fired? And he was there 10 years. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Not anymore, and it's not just the players, I guess. Uh, Don Robertson, always love doing this on Monday night. Thank you for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. All right, Scott. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.